0: From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. When
1: I saw the MJF machine, I was like, oh my God. That's it. There it is. That is the machine that connects the dots between the economics. You know, I can produce parts cheap enough, they're rugged enough, um, and we don't have to deal with supports. There, that they, we don't have to deal with a bunch of post processing. And I saw that machine. I said, This is the machine that is going to unlock additive for the shop floor. And so I went and borrowed all the money. <laughs> I, I took all my money and then I went and borrowed a ton more money and I pushed it all into MJF and I got that shiny new MJF machine in here and I was so proud. And I went to, I'll never forget, I walk into the office of a, an engineering manager at one of my very first machine build customers. Um, and uh, I, I walk in there and I'm, I'm like, dude, you're never going to believe what I got. And I, and I handed him um, a little like gear toy that I designed up uh, uh, and uh, I said, This was printed as a single piece. This isn't an assembly. And I was expecting him to be like, oh my God, this is incredible. And he looks at it and he looks at me and he looks back at it. He's like, how strong is it? And I'm like, I brought the HP data sheet. It's right here. Look at this. It says right there in megapascals how strong it is. He goes, I don't know what that is. He's like, what's quantify that for me? I'm like, well, it's on the sheet. I don't have to quantify it for you. He's like, I don't know what that means. I'm like,
0: Oh, my God. Okay. That was Paul DeWeiss. Paul is a self-described sales guy trapped in the body of an engineer who ended up in marketing. Hence his role as a sales engineer. He works with companies and customers to help educate them about what is possible when you combine 3D laser scanning to capture a part, apply mechanical engineering expertise to modify it, and use added manufacturing equipment to help prototype or produce end-use parts. He does this through his company's DeWeiss Engineering and Forerunner 3D Printing. For today's show, he shares his experience building a 3D printing company from scratch and his advice for communicating the technical information related to 3D printing materials, machines, and processes. All right, Paul, welcome to the show. Do you want to just start by giving a little intro for the audience?
1: Sure. So my name is Paul DeWise. Uh, I am the uh, owner of uh, Forerunner 3D Printing and uh, DeWise Engineering. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're a full service, uh, additive manufacturer, um, also have a, uh, a full engineering, uh, mechanical engineering group as well. So we're kind of a, a hybrid of both additive and, uh, engineering among some other things.
0: So was additive the first type of technology that you started with in your shop, or were you kind of doing other sorts of industrial manufacturing?
1: So I guess a little bit of history. So um let's see so back in 2008 time frame um I was uh, going to to college um I'd done a, an associates in manufacturing tooling which is essentially tool and die school uh, a lot of cnc um you know edm uh lathes just just everything essentially everything you need to know to design and then build uh injection mold stamping dies stuff like that um, and then when I got into my, uh, and that, that whole program was, uh, based in a CAD software called Katia V5 from Dassault. Um, and so I got re- I, I realized pretty quickly, I was an absolutely terrible machinist, but I was an incredible Katia guy. Uh, I broke more stuff in that machine shop. Oh my goodness. So, uh, it, but, but, I could program with the best of them. So, you know, I would program my, my friends who are incredible machinists, they would run the program. Everybody would win. So I started to kind of find my lane, my, my first two years of college, and then my second two years of college, um, I rolled that into a bachelor's in manufacturing engineering. And within about a month, I realized that the last thing I want to do for a living was be a manufacturing engineer. Um, so, but I was in the program and I was young and naive and didn't realize that you could just change degrees. I just was like, well, I'm in it. I got to finish it now. Um, But um, I continued on with my kind of uh, CATIA-related activities, and what happened is I ended up getting hired to be a CATIA lab tutor um, at Ferris. And uh, pretty much what that boiled down to is kids would just pay me, usually in beer, to do their CATIA work for them. Um, And so I had a thriving uh, CATIA business where I was paid in Coors Light uh, in college, and uh, that got me thinking, I was working at a tool and dye shop um, on my, my fri- I didn't have Friday classes and um, I would work there every Friday and then Christmas, you know, uh, summers, things like that. I'd, I'd work there starting in 2007 or maybe 2008. Anyways, so that got me thinking, I wonder if, if, if these kids are willing to, you know, essentially buy me beer to do their CATIA work. I wonder if I could get companies to pay me money to do their CATIA work revolutionary thought. Um, and so, uh, the, uh, kind of the end of that summer of 2008, um, I, uh, I, I, or I'm sorry, it would have been the end of summer 2009, which would have been between my junior and senior years. Um, I, I had Friday classes my senior year, so I couldn't come down and work every Friday. And so I'm sitting there talking to my boss in probably like July timeframe. And I'm like, you know, he's like, Hey, you're going to be working Fridays again, this school year. I'm like, Nope, not this school year. I got Friday classes. And he's like, Oh, that's too bad. We won't have someone to give all the terrible work to. Cause that's what I did. I was just, you know, crap rolled downhill and my desk was at the bottom of the hill. So anything that no one else wanted to do, bam, landed on my desk. And I, and I was, you know, the low man on the totem pole. You can't say no, you're just happy. Heck it's 2009. I was just happy to have a job in manufacturing. Um, And so, I, uh, I, 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 he said, yeah, it's too bad. I want to go the crappy work too. And that got me thinking, you know, I wonder if these guys would hire me remotely from school. So I kind of did an experiment. I, I, uh, I just listened to the four hour work week and, and I, that was all in my head. And I thought I'm going to take a day and I'm going to see if I can not leave my cubicle for a day and still effectively do my job. So for one random Wednesday, I, I did not leave my cubicle for the entire day. Um, I did everything over email and phone calls and I am, and I actually was probably about 15% more efficient than I normally am because you're not talking to coworkers and you're not screwing around, right? So I thought, huh, okay, that's interesting. So I went to my boss and I said, Hey, I, you know, I told you I can't work Fridays, but what if you guys hired me from school to work remotely? I said, I did this experiment and I was more productive. I think I could be just as productive from school uh, working remotely as I could be from here. And um, my boss, you know, he kind of, you know, thinks about it and he goes, well, if you, uh, if you go pitch this to the big boss um, and this company, it's a a wholly owned subsidiary of one of the big three. At one point in time, it was the largest tool and die shop in the world. Um, So it's, it's a, it's quite a big facility. And the guy in charge was um, quite a, had quite a reputation we'll put it that way um and so he goes you got to go pitch him and if he agrees then then we can do this and I go oh, okay so I uh I I jump on the elevator and I go up to the the you know the third or fourth floor of the building I've never even been up there and uh over the lunch break and I get off the, the elevator and it's like in a movie it's like a long hallway and the, the lights uh, there, there's no one up there and the lights are on um like motion sensors so as I was walking down the hall it's like click 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 they're like shutting off behind me. I'm like, Holy crap. Um, <clears throat> and so I, I make it to a secretary and I'm like, Hey, I'm here to see so-and-so. She's like, do you have a meeting? I'm like, no. I'm like, I'm just the intern from the engineering department. She's like, oh. he's eating lunch. You can go talk to him. I'm like, okay. I walk in, there's this guy, he's sitting at his desk. He, he looks up, he's like, he, he looks up and he looks at me and he goes, what? And I go, hello, sir. My name is Paul DeWise. He goes, I know who you are. I'm like, okay, that's great news. I didn't think you knew who I was. Anyways, my boss said that he would hire me to work from, you know, Big Rapids. And, and he said I had to come up here and talk to you. And, and if you said it was okay, he'd say it was okay. And then I could get hired. And Dennis goes, I don't care. <laughs> and I go, so like, we could do it. He goes, if if the other guys, if your boss says it's fine, I don't care. And I go, great turn around on my heels walk back out uh get on the elevator go down and like go to mike i'm like mike you're never gonna believe it you know he said it would be okay and mike's like you actually went and talked to him i'm like yeah he's like oh i didn't think you'd do that i'm like yeah a little bit. so anyways so that was my first customer um i uh i got a hold of a seat of katia v5 um and uh they were customer number one and from summer 2009 through to summer of 2010 um I made just enough money to pay off my seat of Katia. So I, I didn't really make any money, but I came out of school with a seat of Katia and a laptop that could run it. And so I thought, okay, I'm moving back into my mom's basement and my student loans don't kick in for six months. I wonder if I can get two customers because one customer wasn't gonna cut it. I had to have more customers if I wanted to live. Um, so through that summer of 2010, um, I managed to get two more very small customers and I also uh, got a seat of SolidWorks as well because I realized there's like 20 companies in the world that use Katia <laughs> um, <laughs> and three of them are automotive companies. So if I want to grow my business, I couldn't just be Katia. I had to be beyond that. So um, got into SolidWorks and uh, and from 2010 uh, up until about 2000 and. 13, um, just grew, uh, grew my engineering business. Um, really specialized in, uh, factory, uh, automation. So assembly lines and automated assembly equipment, and then also got into, you know, agricultural equipment, things like that. Just pretty much, I didn't say no to anything. If it was like, oh, there's money associated with this. And sometimes even if there wasn't money associated with it, I'd be like, great, I'm in, let's do it. So, um, went and uh and then in 2000 uh well 2013 um i'd, I'd hired a, a couple of uh people at that point in time so i think there was uh I think there was four of us at that point um and we were doing a lot of product development that year uh we picked up a couple of customers doing cell phone cases and so um i had a company um uh, uh, so we're in uh we're between grand rapids michigan and, and the lake and lake michigan about halfway um, and just to the north of us, there's another city called Muskegon. And in Muskegon, there was a, a 3D printing company called Select Manufacturing. And uh, Select uh, is a f- kind of a fascinating story. So this, this guy, this, Ross Gates uh, is his name. Um, Ross saw uh, one of the very first SLA machines at a trade show, like in like 92 or 93. I mean, like way early when it was just 3D systems. And he saw it and he said, you know what? There's a business here. So in 1994, he actually bought his first uh, SLA uh, 250 uh, from 3D Systems and uh, set up shop in Muskegon um, and, uh, and built uh, over the, the next, you know, what, probably 15, 20 years, uh, built a, a nice uh, additive, you know, small additive manufacturing shop. Um, you know, when, when the kind of the, the big crash in 2008 hit the manufacturing market, it really kneecapped him pretty bad. Um, and so he had a downsize quite a bit. So in 2013, when I was dealing with him quite a bit, um, it was, it was him and a, a bookkeeper and a couple of 3d printing techs, and, and that was it. And he had a SLA 500 and an SLA 5,000. Um, and then an old blown up to his old 250 still sitting there too. Um, so all SLA equipment and, uh, Ross love, loves to talk and I love to talk. So what would happen is I would go in there to pick up my parts and like, we would just sit there and just shoot, just shoot the shit for, you know, an hour. And, um, after, you know, like, um, you know, probably six months of like every two weeks I'm in there picking up parts and talking, um, you know, one day he's in there and he's, he's like, Oh, you know, my my daughter just bought a house out uh, on the East coast and, and, you know, I want to go visit her and my wife wants to go visit her and see their new place, but I'm stuck here with this business. I can't leave, you know, the 3d printing and, you know, business It, it it's, you're, if you're not there, nothing's happening. So, um, and I kind of was like half joking. I'm like, Oh, Ross, I'm like, you should sell me your business. Like that, you know, I, I'd buy this business from you. And he's like, well, maybe I will. And I was like, Oh, and I go, okay. Uh, you know, let me let's talk. So I quickly run home and I Google how to buy a business because I had no idea what I was doing or how to go about doing it. And, um, I've always been a big fan of, you know, uh, trying to have mentors. So, uh, you know, anytime I can like somehow like ingratiate myself with like somebody, you know, I, I, kind of stick in my Rolodex and, and, you know, they're nice enough to pick up the phone when I call. So I had a guy that I knew who'd done a lot of MA um, of like, you know, medium to small size businesses. And so I said, Hey, can you come with me? I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, I don't know what to do here. So we went and we talked to Ross. And, um, like I said, this is about probably 2013. And, um, it was pretty obvious. He was, he wasn't really ready yet. He, he wasn't quite there mentally. So I said, you know what, Ross, like no big deal, dude. Like just, you got my number, call me, you know, when you're, when you're ready to sell it, just call me. And so that was 2013. And then literally two years later, uh, 2000 spring of 2015, I'm sitting at my desk and, uh, and I was in the, in the middle of actually building out, um, I, uh, we were, we'd, we'd grown beyond our little office that I started. And there was like five of us in there at that point. So I had an opportunity to, to build out a space in a building down the street. And, uh, so I was just getting ready to build out the space and, uh, my phone rings and it's Ross Gates. I'm like, Oh, I haven't talked to Ross in like six months. And I pick up the phone. I'm like, Ross, how's it going? He's like, I'm done. I'm sick of it. I'm selling it. Do you want it? And I'm like, good to hear from you, Ross. Uh, let's talk. So I literally, I, I turned around to my my engineering manager and I said, hey, man, I'm going to see Ross. I could be gone an hour. I could be gone the rest of the day. I have no idea. I'll let you know what happens. So I shoot out to Muskegon and uh, we sit down and uh, Ross just kind of had a rough couple of weeks and just, you know, he was 67 or 68 years old. And he just, he just was like, I've had enough. And so we went and we talked and um, and we got a, a deal done for me to buy the assets of his company um, and uh, and essentially I bought his machines and his customer list and then I hired him as a contractor for three months to teach me the ropes um, and yeah we got the deal done in like essentially a week and uh, and I called up my uh, my my guy who's doing my construction I'm like stop 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 we got to completely redo the plan <laughs> I got two SLA machines I need to find space for so uh so yeah we got our our sla machines in here and um and so i still had and still have my engineering business and um and so i wanted i didn't just want to roll the assets into DeWise engineering um i i always a big fan of like you know having different business units so um it's like let's start a new business unit specifically for 3d printing and so that is where forerunner 3d printing came from was um you know it's all the same people. It's all, you know, owned by me, but we just break it up into a couple different business units just to keep things a little cleaner for, you know, some customers only need printing. Some customers only need engineering. That's kind of how that all shook out. So, so yeah, so there's a very long answer to your question of how I got my start in additive manufacturing.
0: That's awesome. Um, And so with, as you started the 3D printing business, were you, did you start with that customer list? And was there a lot of overlap between your your engineering business as well? Or what, so, how did you end up growing that? Or, or did that change?
1: So what I, I kind of skipped over a little part. So early on in my engineering business, um, we actually got a ferro arm with a laser scan head on it, because we kept having our foundry and heavy industry customers call us up, and they'd be like, I got a gear and I cracked a tooth off it and you'd show up and it's like a three foot diameter sand gear. And it's shattered into like 600 pieces. And it's got like a helical gear tooth. And you're like, you can get this within like two thou. And I have like a tape measure and calipers and like, uh, uh that's about it. I'm like, no man, I can't, I can't like, this isn't magic. There's not like a button in solid, which just says like new gear. Like, yeah. so we got a Pharaoh arm. And what I realized when I got that Pharaoh arm was there was, a whole bunch of work out there uh just for the Pharaoh arm but it would help get me you know into customers where i could cross sell so we we might go in for Faro reverse engineering work but then while i'm in there maybe we start talking and you're like man we're so buried in engineering and it's like hey if you need help with engineering we you know we do that too and and it worked like magic like i was like what this is crazy like you know th- there's so this cross-selling opportunity and so with 3d printing i kind of had the same idea because my engineering business, you know, we were using 3D printing and we had like a Maker Bot and stuff. You know, we were, we were doing a little bit in the office. But I, I thought, you know, we'll need this. We'll need this, you know, capability going forward. It's only going to get more and more. Um, but uh, my thought was, you know, a ton of my customers probably need this too, even if they don't realize it. And if I have it in-house, it makes it a lot easier for me to cross-sell it Versus trying to say, oh, well, I've got this guy I work with and, you know, there's something to, there's something about having it all in one place that, that just seems to like unlock opportunities. And so, um, and so, yeah, you know, obviously like Ross's customer list, there was, there was people in there that I, I'd never met before. I've never talked to before and he'd been around since 94. So he had some really big companies that he was doing business with, Um, Unfortunately, he pissed a lot of them off because he kind of stopped giving a shit in like, in like 2010. So uh, his customer list wasn't nearly what I'd hoped it was going to be. I got a lot of, uh, uh, hey, this is Paul DeWise. I know you used to do business with select manufacturing. Like, we don't do business with select manufacturing anymore. And it's like, no, no, no. I'm the new guy. I'm not, I'm not Ross. Please, for the love of God, let me talk to you. Um, so yeah, but th- what ended up happening is there was a, an incredible, and to this day there continues to be an incredible amount of our engineering customers who need additive, and now we're seeing a ton of our additive customers who need engineering, specifically designed for additive uh, type engineering. And what's really exciting um, is, you know, I I, 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 as I've been building this engineering company, I mean there's companies, there's engineering companies that are known for tool and die. There's engineering companies that are known for automation. There's engineering companies that are known for product development. And I always looked at those guys and it's like, man, they've been at this for like, you know, 20, 30 years. They've built up this reputation. People know to go to them. I wish, I wish I could find a a greenfield type environment where I could, I could be the the guy of something. And what we found was, was additive manufacturing. Um, The, the, you know, it, it, there we're in like this crazy time frame right now where like everything is moving from like the days of like it's a prototype or you know it's a it's a one-off to like now like low volume manufacturing. And and what we have found, and it's not like some big massive insight here, but like, hey, if you design for the additive manufacturing process, you can really unlock some cool things around not only the capabilities of your parts, but the economics of your parts. Um, You know, one customer I can think of in particular that we have, they make, um, they manufacture composite manhole covers and um, they have to make a lockable version of these manhole covers. If they're covering up like high power, um, like underground vaults where they have like big power buses and things like that, they can't just leave those unlocked. And so, you know, they, but they might only sell 30, 40 of these manhole covers a year with a locking mechanism on it. Um, And so they were about to go drop you know 20 grand on an injection mold to make these brackets and i and i we were doing the engineering on the brackets for them and i'm like guys like we could print this for you and i'm like i won't be able to get to that magical one dollar per part number that you're used to with injection molding but you don't have twenty thousand dollars that you're spending up front And, you know, we can do some cool stuff that you couldn't do with injection, or at least you couldn't do cost effectively with injection molding. Um, But, you know, you got to give me the freedom to redesign this the way I want. And we went from, we could get 35 of the original injection molded brackets into a single MJF build. And when we were done, I think we were over 150 of these uh, in a single build, just because we designed them to stack and to nest in there. And the, I mean, the customer, they... They bought them and they bought a, a full build and and now like yeah once a year they order a full build of those parts for us uh, from us and and they love it because they're like this is great I mean it would they're like we would have bought this tool and the injection mold shop would have had a minimum order quantity of like two thousand they're like we probably would have never used two thousand of these it's so low volume so that's the big. The really cool thing that we're seeing is because we have such a robust engineering group in-house and because they're used to designing for additive because we've been doing it since you know 2015 we've found that it's brought us opportunities because of that.
0: And I'm sure as someone that has both the engineering and the machines in-house there's a lot of I mean say competitors or other people in the space that they're just a job shop. They're, you know give yep. them your design and You'll get back what you get back. And they it may not be designed optimally, but I imagine that capability to say, wait a minute, like if you have you thought about it this way, or being in kind of customers' meetings and seeing the parts from your engineering business, like you have the context, which I think a lot of people in certainly in the heritage of prototyping and some of the the standard service bureaus, like that's, I mean, you never have the context. Like if you knew what it was or what it was going to do, I, there's probably so much more you could optimize if, if needed.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, like one of the things that, you know, I, I, one of the things I had to figure out early on in the, the added manufacturing world is, you know, look, if your customers are interested in only lowest price, you're never going to beat Zometry, You're never going to beat 3d hubs. You're never gonna be, you know, any of those guys. Like they they are they are always going to be the low-cost provider. And that's fine. Like, great. That we need the the industry needs that. But what I've found is a lot of my customers that have tried to push the boundaries of additive have run into a situation of if they're just using the low-cost provider, there's no control, there's no consistency. And and they get, they might get great parts one time. And then the next time they get garbage and they also, let's say they want to try something. Let's say they've got some crazy idea that they want to try. They're kind of, they're just dealing with a, with a, a quoting engine. They just put their part in there and they're like, okay, I, I hope I can get back what I want. Or, you know, they have questions. I mean, yeah, there's great resources pages and and yeah, there's even, you know, sales engineers that you can talk to, but You know, in our experience, what really sets, you know, guys like us apart is like you come to us and, you know, you're dealing with a guy who does this day in and day out every day. And not only not only do we, you know, me and my my guys, not only do we know the machines really, really well, we understand what you're trying to do. Okay, because we also design products and design machines. So a great example of this is a huge portion of our business is supporting uh, what I like to call like shop floor additive. So, um, you know, uh, Stratasys and 3D Systems Forever have been talking about like shop floor jigs and fixtures, jigs and fixtures, jigs and fixtures. Well, there's so much more opportunity out there than just simple jigs and fixtures. And, And what we found is a lot of our machine build customers because we have a 10 year history of designing automated assembly equipment, What we found is a lot of our machine build customers were super leery about using any 3D printing because they'd been burned. Like uh, from what I can tell, you know, a lot of, you know, the large uh, 3D printing OEMs, you know, uh, I'll leave the names out, but you can probably guess what I'm talking about had rolled into these places, you know, in 2007, 2008, kind of at that like hype peak moment when like MakerBot was like gonna change the world and, you know, 3D printing, everyone's gonna have a 3D printer in their closet. And they, they came into all these shops and they, and they said, 3D printing is the answer to all of your problems. Doesn't matter what the problem is, the answer is 3D printing. And, um, and all these shops were like, great, we've been looking for the easy button, here it is. And you know it's just not true. It's not true at all. And so they, all these applications failed, and 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 additive got a black eye. Like everyone was just like, oh, we tried that. It doesn't work. It can't work for us. So this leads to kind of what we we're talking about a little bit before we started the the podcast here. You know, I produce a lot of videos. I produce a lot of content. Um, you know, on our website. And the reason I do that is because my customer base is so skeptical of, of additive. I mean, I, I, I have the most skeptical, I would argue I have the most skeptical customer base uh, in, the, in the world because it's these machine builders. And I remember when I saw the HP MJF for the first time, you know, I'd only been running, you know, SLAs up to that point. And when I saw the MJF machine, I was like, oh, my God that's it. There it is. That is the machine that connects the dots between the economics. You know, I can produce parts cheap enough. They're rugged enough. um, And we don't have to deal with supports there that we don't have to deal with a bunch of post-processing. And I saw that machine. I said, this is the machine that is going to unlock additive for the shop floor. And so I went and borrowed All the money, (laughs) I I took all my money and then I went and borrowed a ton more money and I pushed it all into MJF and I got that shiny new MJF machine in here and I was so proud and I went to I'll never forget I walk into the office of an engineering manager at one of my very first machine build customers Um, and uh, I, I walk in there and I'm I'm like dude you're never gonna believe what I got and I and I handed him um a little like gear toy that i designed up Uh, um, and uh, i said this was printed as a single piece this isn't an assembly and i was expecting him to be like oh my god this is incredible and he looks at it and he looks at me and he looks back at it he's like how strong is it and i'm like i brought the hp data sheet it's right here look at this it says right there in megapascals how strong it is he goes i don't know what that is he's like what's quantify that for me i'm like well it's on the sheet. I don't have to quantify it for you. He's like, I don't know what that means. I'm like, Oh my God. Okay. So I like scramble back to my office and, um, I had a misspent youth filming and editing snowboard videos. Uh, and so when I was a kid, uh, I, uh, I was never, uh, athletic enough or, or especially skilled enough to do anything exciting on a snowboard, but man, I could hold that camera and man, I could get in there and, and edit videos. So I spent, you know, a whole childhood and young adult filming, and so I thought, all right, I'll I'll make a video of like a pull test. Like we'll build a pull tester and I'll pull test these parts to show what you know, forty eight megapascals actually equates to in the real world. And so I held my camera and my engineering manager Nick was over there, and it was literally our our first pull tester was a old lumber liquidators butcher block countertop, a, a winch off of a boat trailer and some pulleys and uh and then we printed um one of my other machine builders had asked me hey uh i said look at you can print threads and he's like great what's the pullout force on those threads i'm like i don't have any idea but let me find out so we printed uh we printed these these test bars and uh first video is nick over there and he's like got like safety glasses on he's just like oh my god and literally cranking this thing and and uh We got the quarter 20 sample to break at 250 pounds in tension three-eighths broke at 350 pounds in tension half inch we broke our pull tester at 650 pounds then we rebuilt our pull tester and broke that one at 900 pounds and i cut that video together and i i sent it to that machine build uh, guy and the next day i had an order and i was like unlock okay so if these guys are skeptical prove to them it'll work and they'll buy parts from you and so literally every video or every piece of content that we produce it starts from me doing a lunch and learn and one of these guys raising his hand and going uh what do you do about what do you do for if you need something that's electrically you know that's a esd safe that can dissipate static electricity and i go I don't know, but let me get back to you. And then, you know, I go and we do a video around ESD safe coatings and options and FDM for ESD. Because don't get me wrong, I love MJF, but I'm not, MJF's not the answer to everything. There's FDM, there's SLA, there's PolyJet, we run it all. Um, and so, you know, uh, that's really what drove us was c- people would ask questions. And instead of just being like, I don't know, man, HP says, this is what it is. And that's all I can do for you. We would actually go and do the test and prove to the customer, Hey, I I don't, I don't know what the HP thing says, but like you understand what three, what 900 pounds is and you understand what a half inch threaded, you know, fastener is, and this is what you get. And then that was like the thing that was an unlock for our customers and it just kept rolling. So we're constantly doing content because it's the only thing that helps us really sell people that are skeptical.
0: I really like the latest ones. I think I watched like three or four in a row on like TPUs and design and different wall thickness and, and how it can, it, it can change the, like how spongy it feels. So and uh, that, that's uh, all just a direct result
1: yeah. of people wanting to know, you know, I get the call all the time. Hey, I need a, I need a, um, uh, shore, uh, 50, um, you know, uh, uh, C, you know, material. And, uh, and I need it in a lattice structure or I need it in a living hinge. And I go, that's great. I said, we could do a polyjet part for you, but it's prototype only. It's not UV stable. It's not good with high heat. It's not going to hold up forever. It's strictly for prototype. And they go, well, this isn't a prototype. It's an end-use part. Okay, well, we have a great TPU rubber material on the MJF machine, but it's 95A durometer. And they would go, oh, that's way too hard. And I go, well, hold on. Like, yes, it's hard. But if you design properly for it, you can make it flexible. It can, it can be hard and flexible at the same time. It's kind of an oxymoron, but it's true. And so that's where that, 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 that TPU test video came from was exactly that, explaining to a customer how to design their parts to induce flexibility while the material is still hard.
0: So i'm going to get into a little bit in the weeds here so you've got kind of your mjf machine so you do you run nylon and alas uh, like the the tpus yeah what's what's the clean out process like
1: so we have two processing stations okay so, got it yeah oh yeah. It. yeah if anyone okay. is like thinking they're <laughs> going to get into mjf and they're going to hot swap materials on their processing station that is a massive undertaking you will burn three thousand dollars in material just trying to purge your machine out and it will take you a day and a half and even then um now that i think about it hp won't even let you change it out yourself you have to have your your reseller come in and actually do the clean out and uh and and, and put the new material in for you they won't even let you do it yourself
0: wow yeah i got my start using a an old dtm machine so taking oh yeah the, <laughs> yep. taking the powders out and re- so I mean that's the that's the really sweet thing about these MJF machines
1: and and why I saw when I first saw it I'm like that's it because the the printer itself is material agnostic. You know, yeah, you're going to have an hour of PM every time you finish a build, you know, to get everything clean, but you pull that build card out, you do your one hour PM, you go from PA12 to TPU and you're you're an hour to get between them. Um, you know, versus the SLS machines, you know, you can have some serious time in getting material switched over on, especially the older ones. Um, so, you know, that that is a real unlock, and and that's why I I really like the fact that you know you can do that with an MJF machine. It makes it instead of having to have you know a dedicated SLS machine for each of your major running powders, you can have one MJF printer, which. You know, I don't know what the, the list on a forty two hundred or fifty two hundred is these days, but it's significant money. But like a processing station, you know, you can get into a processing station, you know, uh, for one hundred K. And so now instead of, you know, half a million, half a million, half a million to have printers with each of your materials in it. Now you might have half a million for a printer and then 100K, 100K, 100K. And now you've got, you know, essentially you've got all these materials and you don't have that huge up. You still have a big, big money investment, but you don't have that like, you know, a million five worth of equipment. You know, you might have sub a million dollars worth of equipment. And technically, yeah, you can't run them all at the same time, but the MJF runs so fast that you can switch between them and still get your parts done on your customers' timelines in, in our experience.
0: And as you have scaled or people become more uh, familiar with the MJF technologies, repeat customers, do you see them kind of expanding their portfolio of like, Hey, we can, we're actually thinking about doing production in this or low volume kind of beyond jigs and fixtures. We
1: have seen a real change in, in our business over probably the last year and a half. Um, And I think that's also because, You know, we're getting more and more name recognition in the the additive, you know, industry. So I think that has something to do with, but, but I really think that, you know, production additive is here, like it has arrived. And I think that we are in for a very exciting, you know, next decade, essentially, and in production additive, Um, you know, you look, so like I said, I'm machine designer by trade, right? So I am always looking at, you know, additive and thinking like, oh my god, like someone needs to automate this process. Like unpacking builds or blasting parts or dyeing parts. Like when we got into this and I'm like everyone's like, "Get a, you know, get a freaking Econoline bead blaster chamber and get a Crock-Pot that you fill up with black dye and ta-da, you're in you're in the additive business." I'm like this is stupid. <laughs> like, why is there, why has no one automated this stuff? So literally with dye, dye is a great example. I was so frustrated by the fact that like the best there, the two solutions were a crock pot, uh, with black dye in it or like an $80,000 dimension system with like proprietary dye cartridges. Um, like, don't get me wrong. Dimension, great people, great equipment, very German, like most German equipment. I, my opinion, wildly overpriced um, and,
0: and over-designed. You could shoot a bazooka oh, at it. And if, it would, if there was like a nuclear
1: bomb that was going to go up, I'd jump <laughs> inside one of those Dimension bla- <laughs> blasting chambers. You could it'd be like Indiana Jones in the refrigerator. Like you ride <laughs> that thing out in there. Great equipment. It'll never break. It'll live way longer than you. But anyways, so, you know, we were to the point where I, I went to my machine design, uh, uh, one of my machine designers, one day, and I said, "Listen, I said, let's next time we have some downtime in the engineering department, I want to go on Craigslist. I want to get an old washing machine, okay? I want to get a servo drive and a, a, a just an automation direct PLC. I said we're going to rip the guts out of this thing. We're going to hook a servo drive up to it, and we're going to put a, a high temperature pump on it and a holding tank. And I said." I think we could make a great part dyeing machine out of an old washing machine. Um, and then I get a freaking call from uh, my, my HP reseller and they're like, Hey, there's this new company called Gerbau. They're a, uh, they're a, uh, uh, they're over in uh, Barcelona, Spain. They make industrial laundry equipment and they have a new dye machine. And I look at it and it's a high temperature washing machine. It's, it's a, if you go to a laundromat, it's a laundromat washing machine that they rebuilt for, dying parts and i'm like that's it that's what i need right there and i i looked at the price and i said you know what for what you're charging i'd spend the same amount to build it myself i'll just buy it um and so and i'm seeing more and more that you look at the guys at like amt you know you look at their their vapor smoothing stuff and i i i keep watching those guys because i i can see where they're going with like some of their concept stuff of like a fully automated mjf cell um and and so you know, you look at that kind of development, you look at the advent of like MJF and like, you've got high speed centering coming someday from Stratasys that's supposed to be in a very similar kind of field from what I understand, or a similar type of equipment. Um, And then, you know, you put all that together and it's like, okay, well now someone calls you and says, Hey, you know, I'm looking at, you know, this little bracket piece and uh, I've got a feature in it that can't be injection molded, but by having that feature in it, there, it brings a ton of value to this piece. So I, you know, I want to do, you know, 25,000 of these a year or something like that. I think we're at a point now where that isn't a crazy ask. Like that's something that can absolutely be done. Um, and I think that there's also, you know, uh, OEMs and, and end users, they're becoming more and more comfortable with the idea of, a, of an additively manufactured part. Um, because I think so many people, when they think 3D printing or they think added manufacturing, they think of the MakerBot at their kid's school. And don't be wrong, nothing wrong with a MakerBot machine, but it's just people look at that and they go, well, that's not what I want. I, I run a real business. I do real business. I don't want a kid's toy. And I think that there was a mentality for a long time that 3D printing was kind of a toy or a prototype. OK, um, and I think that is really changing, especially as the demographic shift in, 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 uh, more, uh, millennials are, are in leadership roles inside of these companies. Um, I mean, that's like my best customer base is, is going to the young engineers or the, the guys my age, uh, you know, in their early thirties at these companies. And, you know, they're, they, they had a maker bot in college or they, you know, they're not afraid of 3d printing. And so when, when they're looking at a production part, they're open to the idea of it not being a machine part, an injection molded part, a sheet metal part. So I, I really think we're setting ourselves up for some really exciting times in additive production over the next couple of years, but it's here. It's not like, oh, it's coming. Like, no, 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 it's here.
0: And my hope too is on the material side. I think that's the, the challenge. I mean, we always want more materials, but I've been frustrated with the price of materials. <laughs> I've the,
1: oh, you the same. <laughs> so when I got into the SLA side of things, I will never forget... When I was talking to Ross, uh, when I was looking at acquiring his business, I was like, what's raw material cost on something like this? And he's like, you see that 10 kg jug in the corner? I go, "Uh uh-huh. He goes, that's (laughs) $2,000. And I go, what? And he goes, yeah, you have two choices, 3D systems or DSM. And they're essentially in a, a cabal. So whether you go with Acura or whether you go with Next, you're basically paying the same thing. Um, And so that was super, that that was, again, another reason I got to say with the MJF machine, I can get, whatever, 130 kilograms of PA-12 for about $6,000. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of money. But when you look at how many builds we can get out of that box and how many parts we can get out of that box, it's it's really competitive compared to any other 3D printing technology that I'm personally aware of. Um, And I just think, like, the prices are going to continue to march down because... Let's be honest, all those patents from the 80s and 90s are running out. And, and as those patents are running out, you know, more and more of these startup machine builders and more, you know, chemical companies, like everyone's starting, like you can see the rush starting to come in, you know, BASF is coming in and, you know, uh, uh, whatever. Um, oh, my goodness. Uh, Arkema and and different, different, you know, people that names you recognize from the, you know, polymers and injection molding world. Those guys are starting to come in, and now we're starting to get those big economies of scale. You know, where, you know, the big injection molders they're buying polymers by the rail car, right? And and that's where you get the big, you know, the big discounts and stuff like that. And it's like I don't think we're terribly far away from being able to do that same thing. And like you said, the diversity of materials, I would love to see it go faster. Uh, one of the the one of the things that's frustrating about the the MJF is is I wish I wish the velocity that materials were being released was a little bit higher. Um, you know, there was a little bit of, I think, an overpromise underdeliver. under deliver. I don't think they maybe realized how difficult it was going to be to get some of these things to work. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. But I, I think that, you know, anytime there's new materials coming out of the market, or even like, FDM, like you know, with with like you know PEEK or P E P E K K, you know different different like kind of super polymers. Like forever, it was like all temp, like that was the best you could get. But now there's all these other things that are coming online. It's like every time I every time I am like at IMTS or any of these trade shows, and I walk by the DuPont booth, I walk up to those guys and I go, Do you know how much money you could make if you can 3D print Delrin? If you can figure out how to print POM? everyone will just be like, shut up and take my money. Like I, I, and they're like, Oh, it's not that easy. I'm like, you're DuPont, put some people on it. I bet you could figure something out. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think, you know, materials have a ways to go, but it's a lot better than it was even a couple years ago.
0: So as you've been growing your kind of 3d printing business, how do you find the people to your team to kind of operate the machines like as kind of a a business owner when you're a lot of people that listen to the podcast are thinking about maybe exploring 3D printing as a career or kind of exploring the space like what do you look for in in someone that will work for you work in your shop
1: you know um, the answer that I'm going to give is tailored to the size of business that we are so um, in total, there's there's eight of us here. So myself and, and seven others. And we're distributed between the additive and the engineering side of things. So we're a small company, you know. Um, and in a small company, being willing to do whatever needs to be done to get the job done. You know, there are days where you know what, all hell's breaking loose. I'm cleaning the MJF machine. I'm packing up boxes. I'm down there blasting parts like it's not you know, when I'm, when I'm hiring someone, it's like, you know what, man, you're not going to sit here at a desk all day, you know, answering the phone and writing emails and and looking at applications, you know, at a business of our size, you have to be, you have to do that, but you have to also be willing to, you know what, Hey, go throw on some crappy clothes. We've got an SLA machine that just blew up and we got to, we got to get some resin on ourselves to get this thing put back together. So You know, um, we are, we're really big, you know, when I'm, when I'm hiring, I'm always, I'm always telling people like, here's your job description, but here's the other half of your job description, because this is just what we do as a company. So this is what you're, you're being hired to do, but this is the stuff that you may be called on to do at any time. And that goes from me all the way down to, you know, the high school intern that I keep around whenever I have one available. Um, You know, you got to be willing to do the work. And that is one of the things that I've, I've run into a little bit is some of the guys that are, you know, coming out of, of college and, and they're, they're a little bit precious about themselves and the fact that, well, you know, I've got a mechanical engineering degree. What do you mean I need to blast parts? It's like, dude, you want a paycheck or not? Like, you know, I, I'm not I'm not here to like ruin your life. But like, you know, if this has to get done, you have to be willing to do it. So that's always something that I'm looking for is I'm looking for the guy or the girl that is willing to do whatever needs to be done to make the customer happy and to, to get that customer to come back to us. Um, Because, you know, every customer counts, you know, we, we live and die by the fact that we have good repeat customers and, you know, sometimes taking care of them means, you know, going outside of your job description. So that's, that's important to me. Education is not nearly that high on the list. You know, I, I've got people here that, have a high school education. I have people here that, you know, have a, a bachelor's. I have everything in between. Um, you know, uh, education's great, but it, it just because maybe you only have an associates or heck, maybe you only have a high school diploma. But you know what? Like if if you can if you can do the job, additive is such a wide open industry. It's so young, relatively speaking. I mean, I mean, you look at like the foundry industry. I mean, that was like biblical times there were foundries. I mean, like that's like, that thing's been around forever. So, I mean, you look at additive, it's like the late eighties, essentially we got our start. Like we're, we're in the infancy of this industry. And so, you know, I mean, I've got, I've got guys here where, you know, on paper, they look very, you know, average to below average, but you put them into these scenarios and they just crush it. And, uh, so yeah, you know, I I don't, I think if I was giving advice to someone who was like coming out of high school and like, I want to get into additive manufacturing, like, look, if, if you want to go to an engineering school, you want to get a mechanical engineering degree, like that's great. That's, that's valuable. But if you're like, man, I really don't want to, I really don't want to go to school or I want to get my start and then maybe figure things out. Like go find your local additive manufacturer and be like, Hey man, you know, do you need someone to, to blast parts? Do you need someone to, you know, sweep the floor? And I guarantee you, if you go in there and you show that like you're diligent, and you're hardworking, like sky's the limit, you know, because there's no book, there's no class that teaches you additive manufacturing, at least not that I'm aware of. Um, and, you know, you can get exposure to it in college, but there's, there, it's not like a mechanical engineering degree where like, you know, there, there's a, there's a very laid out path that you can go down to get for, to something like that. With that, it's kind of wide open, so you can kind of make the path however you want to. So, you know, whether you're, you know, a complete rocket scientist, you want to go work at like one of these crazy metal printing facilities that are building SpaceX parts, or, you know, you want to come work for some good old boy like me in a small town America who's just cranking out parts for for all kinds of different industries, you know, you can get in. It's, it's the, the wide o- opportunity is here. You just got to come grab it
0: sure and so going into 2021 we're at the start of the year here kind of what are you looking forward to in in the coming months
1: um hopefully a return to normalcy um you know i'm a i'm a sales guy at heart i, I i've i love sales I, I love talking to people being around people and you know the other reason that we you know i've always done the videos but 2020 i i couldn't do cold calls i couldn't do lunch and learns i i couldn't go to a mug i couldn't you know I, i i the only thing i went to last year was solidworks world and that was like a week before covid really hit in the united states and that was the end of it for me and so you know i i was left to like well i have to reinvent what selling looks like in 2020 because it's not the way i've been doing it for the last 10 years and so Thankfully, I, I, you know, I've, I've lucked into having the skill set to, you know, be a little bit, you know, savvy on, on website design and, and, you know, making some videos and content and stuff like that. And that worked really well for us in 2020. Um, but in 2021, you know, last week we had our, our first lunch and learn. You know, I had one of my customers call me up and he's like, dude, he's like, we got to get it. I got to get my engineering department into your office. I want a full tour of your facility. And I want you, I, I do these things called the all killer, no filler lunch and learn. It's not a sales pitch. It is a hardcore design for additive manufacturing hour. And, uh, and I tailor it to whatever group I'm talking to. So in this case, it was a machine builder. So it was like hardcore, how to design the type of stuff that you as a machine builder are using, how to design it for additive manufacturing. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to in 2021, being able to get back to doing that again, because I, I just miss being around people, to be honest with you. Like I have a great crew here, but you know, I'd like to see some other people too. <laughs> Um, So that, and then, you know, just, I mean, last year was stressful to say the least part as a, as a business owner, you know um, I, I look at my employees and I don't just see them. I see, you know, I see uh, five children that I'm putting food on the table for. I I see mortgages, I see car payments and um, you know, in March of end of March of last year, like all of our engineering work got canceled. Uh, our printer was literally just, all of our printers were just sitting here. Like no one was submitting, no one was even submitting RFQs. And, um, and it was, it was terrifying for a couple of weeks there in March, because I was like, what am I going to do to provide for these people? Cause essentially the, the, the buck stops in this office right here. Like if, uh, you know, I'm the one that has to keep things going, I'm the sales engineer. And so, you know, thankfully we, we pivoted quickly and got into some PPE and got into a bunch of hand sanitizer dispenser work and, and it it worked out. Okay. Um, You know, but, but hopefully not having to do that again this year, I would just like a normal year with just normal problems, no pandemics. I want to see people. I'm a simple man. I just want simple things.
0: (laughs) I think we can all agree with that. So Paul, I really appreciate the time. Yeah. Good no luck problem. with everything in the coming months and hopefully maybe I'll see you at AMUG. Soon. Yeah, I'll
1: be right. there. I'll be there, man. I think I'm going to be, pre- I, well, I don't know if it's been accepted yet, but hopefully I'll be presenting at AMUG this year. So, Perfect. but yeah, Mike, thank you so much for this opportunity, man. I really appreciate it. And anyone who's watching, hey, if you want to, you know, talk to me or, 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 you know, see any of the content I'm putting out, Paul DeWise on, uh, on LinkedIn, P-A-U-L-D-E-W-Y-S, send me a connection. Uh, I'd be happy to connect with you. If you want to shoot me an email, uh, it's paul uh, at forerunner3d.com. So that is uh, P A U L at F O R E R U N N E R, the number three in the letter D.com.
0: Awesome. And we'll post everything on the links when we post this out. Oh, so real. we'll uh, link the videos, all the awesome content as well. So thanks. Appreciate Mike. it.